Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine. Discuss conflicting accounts from Kiev as apparent tensions between Volodymyr Zelensky and General Valery Zeluzhny resurface. And we look in more detail at Russia's wartime economy. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 30th of January, one year and 339 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. So the big news, not battlefield stuff directly, but the big news from the last 24 hours has been the maybe the latest iteration in this it, spat might be too strong a word we don't want to overplay it but um president zelensky's office has been forced to deny that the commander in chief of the armed forces general Zeluzhny, has been sacked they have forced to deny that last night it rumbles on there is more to come on this francis will dig into it in a bit but just to start off there i mean general Zeluzhny is a figurehead he's but, but has been criticized for being too narrow in Imagination, not aggressive enough. We know President Zelensky disliked his use of the term stalemate, possibly why the um, Dnipro bridgehead is still there, because it's not it's not doing an awful lot. There's a, they don't need the people there in order to hold Russia back necessarily. Got a big geographical feature. Anyway, that we don't know if that the reasoning for that is is, is this this difficulty between Zelensky and Zelensky. But all of that and more to come uh, from Francis a little bit later. But on to the uh, sort of specific updates. Overnight Russian attacks in Sumy, Donetsk and Herzon oblasts have led to more civilian deaths and injuries. Drones damaged an electrical substation in Dnipro Petrovsk oblast, causing a blackout. Also caused a blackout in Chernihiv oblast. That comes from Ukrainian authorities. During the night, Ukraine shot down 15 of 35 Russian drones. That's a lower percentage than in recent months. Colonel Yuri Inyat, who's uh, Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson, we refer to him a lot. He said these statistics may seem strange to some. They are used to seeing up to 100% of targets successfully downed. We need to explain this to the public. This is not due to a change in enemy tactics. The enemy struck with an unexpected number of UAVs on multiple fronts and from different directions. So 
So actually, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what he means by that then. If he's saying that's not a change in enemy tactics, just saying they were overwhelmed, that that is... I mean, as we've said, you can't put air defence everywhere. So if they're finding the gaps and going there, that's what they would do. I mean, it, it is worth noting every death and injury, especially from the civilian population, is obviously very, very regrettable. But these numbers are exceptionally low. For a, a, an army the size of Russia, supposedly the size of Russia's, they are not having much effect at all. Um, however, at the same time, Andrei Kovlevev, who is a spokesperson for the general staff, Ukraine's general staff, he said Ukraine had shot down a Russian Su-34 fighter over Luhansk yesterday. That's a very, a very sophisticated fighter. It brings the total of Russian military aircraft lost since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, we think, to 332, a colossal number. Then going the other way, Russia's Ministry of Defence said 21 Ukrainian drones had been used to attack the regions of Belgorod, Bryansk, Kaluga, Tula and occupy Crimea. So less Crimea, those other, those other regions, if you imagine a clock face, put Moscow in the middle of it, then down to the lozenge described by a line from sort of Moscow in the centre down to the number six, round to the number eight and back to Moscow, that sector... That's all the areas that um, that were attacked by these drones overnight. Basically, it's the it's the areas that border Russia, borders with Belarus and um, to the southwest and Ukraine to the south. And the Russian MOD said all 21 drones have been shot down by air defences, didn't make any comment about damage or casualties. Now, next, Ukraine's, this happened in the last hour or so, reporting. Ukraine's military intelligence spokesperson, Andrei Yusov, just speaking in the last uh, last couple of hours, said that Russia shows no willingness to return the bodies of the Ukrainian prisoners of war allegedly killed in that Ilyushin plane crash, the IL-76 that crashed last Wednesday, January the 24th. Just as a reminder, Russia has alleged that uh, their military aircraft that crashed in Russia's Belgorod oblast was destroyed by Ukrainian forces. They said it was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners that were going to be swapped for Russian prisoners. Ukraine has called Russia's narrative into question, demanded an international investigation, which Moscow has so far refused. The Kiev Independence reporting, uh, like I say, in the last hour or so, that Yusuf said, as of now, there is no evidence of the, of the presence of any prisoners of war on the crash plane, apart from Russia's claims. You would expect there to have been pictures all over social media, of dead bodies and all the usual horrific stuff. There have been none. So Mr Yusuf said... However, if the worst possibility turns out to be true, we'll do everything possible to return our defenders. Ukraine's coordination headquarters for the treatment of prisoners of war confirmed that a prisoner swap was planned for January the 24th that was meant to involve 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. Ukrainian officials nevertheless said that Russia has so far provided no evidence that these prisoners were on the crashed plane. So we are no real further no further forward although with every day that uh, no evidence is forthcoming it does make you wonder quite whether any were on the board on board the plane now next and the netherlands has allocated 132 million dollars to support uh, ukraine's ammunition supply other military equipment cyber security this comes from dutch defense minister kasia ollengren speaking yesterday 94 million dollars of that is going to be on artillery ammunition about 10 million on cyber security the other 27 million used for purchasing um, general military equipment, that's going to come through the International Fund for Ukraine. You might remember that was the, the funding mechanism set up on the initiative of Ben Wallace when he was the UK's Defence Secretary, separate from and parallel to the uh, Ramstein initiative. 
A uh, couple more, couple more. Kremlin seems to be forming its own mercenary group to operate in Africa, Bloomberg are reporting. They're citing sources who said uh, Putin's government is looking to take advantage of the vacuum left after Wagner has moved off the scene, but to keep those lucrative contracts across Africa. So this new group is going to be named, apparently named the Africa Corps, which obviously has echoes of the uh, the, the Nazi forces in the Second World War in North Africa. Said to be in the region of about 20,000 men, going to be recruited for operations primarily in the Sahel region. Next one, Russia for the fourth time this month, has bombed its own villages inside inside Russia before they've before the munitions actually got over the border into Ukraine. It's come from British MOD. In the latest Defence Intelligence briefing, the uh, MOD are saying, Britain's MOD, saying that two FAB-250 bombs had been dropped on two villages in the Belgorod region on Saturday. Belgorod obviously bordering uh, Ukraine and Belarus. Now, they say it cannot be confirmed whether such incidents occurred due to poor procedures when arming the aircraft prior to sorties or poor execution by aircrew during missions. It is likely a combination of both. The increasing frequency of these occurrences likely demonstrates a degree of air and ground crew fatigue within the Russian front line, as well as exposing inadequate training. I mean, there is a third reason. It could be technical malfunction, although it's very odd for to have so many incidents of this, but... Having the, the munition come off the rail of an aircraft is just the sort of start of it, if you like. It's then got to, uh, it's then got to function correctly in flight and, um, and all the rest of it. So you know, there, the technical errors do creep in, but unlikely, given the, uh, the number of incidences, it's probably likely to be something that the ground crew or the air crew are doing. And then just finally for me, um, Russia has turned off. 4G mobile internet connections in around Leningrad, Novgorod and Pskov. They say they're going to fine-tune their anti-drone defensives. Now, these oblasts have previously announced that the signal, the 4G mobile signal, is going to be disrupted from January 25th to the 30th for technical adjustments to the radio frequency spectrum. ISW Institute for the Study of War say Russia may be retooling aspects of its air defence umbrella in deep rear areas amid continued Ukrainian drone strikes within Russia. There's been a lot of strikes against energy infrastructure, as we've been reporting pretty much daily. So, obviously, I deployed the deployed the Caulfield, uh, went and spoke to Gareth Caulfield, our, our um, the cybersecurity expert here, asked him what he thought might be going on here. And as he explained, so some drones can be controlled over mobile phone net- networks. Now, if you want to blend into an electromagnetic environment to hide from an enemy that's sniffing around for unusual mobile radio frequency transmitters on known drone control frequencies all you need is a 4g sim card module an antenna and then that data connection will be invisible amongst all the normal traffic of everyone going about the daily business and and all, all the rest of it so russia in their in their announcement they said they were talking of technical adjustments to the radio frequency spectrum Sections of the electromagnetic spectrum for mobile phone signals are licensed to individual phone companies. That's supposed to mean that you just don't clash with each other at a regional level. So, for example, a phone mast on the Channel Islands using Vodafone's 4G spectrum won't drown out Orange France's signal in Cherbourg, for example. Pure speculation here from Gareth, but he knows what he's talking about, onions and all that. He said Russian and Ukrainian mobile networks might be on separate but neighbouring bands. So a Russian air defence commander that might think or know where the Ukrainian drones 
are in the electromagnetic spectrum if they're using Ukrainian SIMs for command and control. If they then shift all their Russian mobile networks onto different frequencies, far enough up the up the band, up the radio band, that there's clear space, literally clear space, you can see it on a spectrum analyzer, clear space between their frequencies and those what you think are Ukrainian frequencies, then air defense spectrum analyzers might be able to isolate Ukrainian mobile signals, making it easier to detect and destroy incoming Ukrainian drones. So that was... Um, I mean, Gareth was explaining it to me with very simple, not quite sort of salt and pepper jars, but not far off it. And um, it, it makes sense to me. But any technical questions, please, to Gareth. And I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much for that, Tom. Let's go now to Francis Sternley, who's been looking a little more in depth on the, I think we can call them definite tensions between General Zeluzhny and Vladimir Zelensky. Well, thanks, David. Yes, absolutely. As Dom said, anyone who was watching this war closely last night, particularly on social media, will have seen the intense speculation that Army Chief Solutioni had been sacked with rumours swirling that he'd been actually replaced by his intelligence chief Budinov. Indeed, a string of Ukrainian newspapers had reported that the commander was being sacked or forced to resign after an MP first made the claim. And such was the feverish nature of the speculation that this morning Zelensky's office was forced to deny the story outright with Zelensky's press secretary saying definitely not the president did not fire the commander in chief. Ukraine's Ministry of Defence has also denied the report saying dear journalists we immediately answer everyone no it's not true. As you say, David, reports of tensions between Zelensky and Zeluzhny will be well known to listeners. We discussed them at length in the aftermath of the publication of the latter's essay, laying out what he believed was necessary in order to end the stalemate, his term on the front lines. In one of the first episodes of the year, I reported from sources in Kiev that speculation was rampant there that Zeluzhny was on the way out. Now, that may still be the case, but bear in mind in wartime, such things have to be handled with immense care or it may advantage the enemy. Theories last night have been really rife about what's been happening. So Christopher Miller of the Financial Times has written on X... What's apparent is allies of ex-President Poroshenko, who is Zelensky's top political rival, are the ones who first caught wind of what's maybe an imminent shake-up and leaked it. They first posted the rumours online. Now, in Brussels, they are spinning the following. And he lists their similar content that was being put out about speculation around the future of Zeluzhny and other officials in the ministry. Oliver Carroll, foreign correspondent for The Economist, also said last night... So, Zeluzhny and Zelensky met tonight. Sources close to Zeluzhny and other top government sources told me they believed firing would happen tonight. The presidential order has not been signed. There has been huge outrage about rumoured plans. There may be walk back. Other outlets in Ukraine reported that the two met and tried to agree on another role for Zeluzhny and could not. Anyone familiar with politics will see the obvious parallels with reshuffles of a cabinet or a top team by a president or prime minister. And like reshuffles, what we can see here is the respective parties of both sides, the president and the general, coming out in a show of strength for their man or backing the man who will do the most to support the changes they want to see within Ukraine. As Mr. Carroll writes, something worth reflecting on. If you accept the evidence of a breakdown in trust between Zelensky and his top general, is that tonight's outrage has shown that Zelensky will find it really, really hard to fire him. It isn't a trivial concern. We're at a difficult moment for Ukraine. 
Now, the Russian expert Mark Galliotti agrees in his assessment. After a night of claim, counterclaim, rumour and speculation, it appears that Zelensky has decided not to dismiss his commander-in-chief Zeluzhny. Tension, however, clearly remains between the two. And this is bad news for Ukraine. The intensity of last night's social media storm and the pitch of dismay will have provided a whole barrage of warning shots. Yet the rumours were plausible because they did speak to a genuine political rift that has opened between the pair. And that's just it. It's worth remembering that Zeluzhny is the only public figure who approaches Zelensky for national popularity. In a poll at the end of last year, 98% of respondents expressed trust in him, compared to 93% for President Zelensky. Now, any other Western politician would kill for those kind of numbers, by the way. But nevertheless, there are rumours that Zeluzhny may well want to run for president himself one day. And that's feeding into some of this speculation. So this kind of tension, it's not necessarily surprising. History is full of similar examples. President Harry Truman and General Douglas MacArthur had a very strained relationship during the Korean War that ultimately led to MacArthur's dismissal due to disagreements over military strategy and policy. It was widely removed that MacArthur had political ambitions himself. Stalin and Khrushchev had strained relations with their top commander, Zhukov, each removing him from favour at various points. Close bonds between those two positions in history are rarer. Reagan and Colin Powell, perhaps, Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. But as I say, they're less common. Do get in touch if you've got other examples of either. So rounding up, what really happened? We don't know. But evidently something happened. And it may be that Zelensky mooted the possibility to Zeluzhny of offering him another post. And this launched a huge backlash, which the president has since had to row back on. Alternatively, as Galeotti suggests, the possibility may be floated, whether by Zelensky or Yermak, as a trial balloon, a show of strength to see whether it would be conceivable that Zeluzhny could go. And if so, that does show the nature of their current predicament. This won't help, of course, the immensely challenging military, political and economic struggle Kyiv currently faces. Indeed, Antony Blinken, US Secretary of State, has said today Ukraine's gains on the front line are in jeopardy if the US and other Western countries do not send it more military aid. Ukraine's Strategic Industries Minister has also said that Ukraine is unable to outperform Russia's production of weapons and munitions, suggesting that Kyiv instead needs to focus on achieving an edge over their enemy through cheaper innovations. And for more on that subject, I recommend Simon Schuster's piece in Time magazine today called This is the Way Out Inside Ukraine's Plan to Arm Itself. And just in case you missed it, we interviewed Simon for a special episode which went out over the weekend about his time with Zelensky. And it's highly recommended, full of uh, very deep insights on the man and the direction of travel. The scale of the economic challenge, as I say, is also made clear in a piece by Politico today called Ukraine's Hopes to Avoid Economic Doomsday. It's a good summary of the Ukraine wartime economy. And to quote from it, not all officials are downbeat. The country has accumulated over $40 billion of foreign exchange reserves and can point to improvements in tax collection and in its ability to raise money through domestic borrowing. Ukraine will still be able to sustain itself for some time at the expense of its own domestic resources, the central bank governor told Politico. Although risks to the regulatory and timeliness of the international aid inflows have materialised, we remain optimistic. But the harsh reality, and Maria Repko, Deputy Director of the Kyiv Centre for Economic Strategy, is that it is impossible to cover the non-military half of state spending from internal sources in a country at war, not least since Russia has bitten off a chunk of Ukraine that accounted for a quarter of its gross domestic product.
The better news in the financial world is that the EU has today said it will send Ukraine profits generated by Russian assets that have been frozen in Europe since the start of the war. The plan is expected to generate a total of £11 billion from 2023 to 2027. That's about $15 billion. This is coming from the Financial Times. Reuters have reported that the move was agreed at a meeting of all 27 ambassadors of EU countries that are meeting yesterday. Of course, it's all still tiny compared to the frozen assets in full, which I think are worth around $300 billion, but it's still something. And as Joe mooted yesterday, Viktor Orban has also said that he will drop his opposition to further EU military aid for Ukraine if it is reviewed every year. So repeating that position that he outlined previously in which Joe has covered, Hungary's prime minister said that it's ready to participate in the solution if you guarantee that each year Hungary will decide whether or not to send its money. And this annual decision must have the same legal basis as today. It must be unanimous. Now, it would mark a shift of sorts, opening the way for some funds to get to Kyiv ASAP. But compared to when many people would like to see the levels of economic support, I think it's fair to say we're still some way off. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Just before we go to Roland, Joe, anything to add on that Orban story? Were we expecting this? Yeah, as I said yesterday, I think it's entirely plausible that Victor Orban often plays the big man in in the public sphere, but when it gets to the behind closed doors negotiations, he seems to lose his bottle somewhat and goes with the crowd. So, um, yeah, what's important is I think there's two things to mention. So the aid he is dropping his opposition to is the financial aid. So this is macroeconomic support. This is help for Ukraine's economy. That's 50 billion euros over four years. So basically, and this looks like the way forward. I've I've mentioned it a couple of times now. Viktor Orban has been offered some sort of concession, which gives Hungary a emergency break, basically a review point every year where he can go yes or no after basically a review of the sort of the previous year's aid has been conducted. There is another another interesting sort of revelation. I was talking yesterday about a twenty billion dollar or twenty billion euro, sorry, about the same these days anyway military aid package which would again provide support over four years the eu have basically taken that and trunk it and they're going to they're going to look at doing five billion euros annually but as sort of a long-term commitment and this is basically known as the european peace facility it's a pot of money that member states can basically take from in exchange for sending weapons to ukraine this is weapons from stockpiles but actually what's going to happen i i will probably come back so later say and sorry any dinging is basically giles our producer and other people in a chat that we use moaning about the dinging because <laughs> i left my laptop speaker on so i apologize so yeah back to the money so basically we expect that the and it's currently written into the draft conclusions that have been leaking out from the european council summit due to happen on thursday that the eu will promise five billion in weaponry for ukraine every year um or the next probably four years so it's a 20 billion in pot but legally they're going to do it as five billion a year and essentially that will allow countries to be reimbursed for donations from their own stockpiles but there's going to be some more caveats boiled into that so they're going to look at a french proposal essentially which basically suggests that the pot of money could be used to directly buy weapons from industry, but only European industries, the industries based in the EU. And then the reason for some of the shrinking is because you would have heard my reports previously on Germany, suggesting that 
it is upset that because Germany pays a quarter into this European peace facility, so um, it will be paying sort of, what's it one one seven five billion euros um, in this. But it complained previously that while on the hook for a quarter of the fund, it would um, basically its bilateral contributions, which amount to seventeen billion since the start of the war, um, is much greater than many other EU states who have exclusively gone through this EU pot. Another interesting thing is to get Hungary's buy-in to this pot as well. Hungary doesn't send weapons, but they're going to start being able to claim back humanitarian aid to non-lethal support for Ukraine through this pot. And that will also help countries like Austria and Ireland who are militarily neutral and don't produce or provide weapons to Ukraine, but have been delivering things like... so first aid kits, tourniquets, other sort of generators and other sort of humanitarian things that they'll be able to also claim back through this pot if all agreed. And the only other sort of EU, well, very much Hungarian update is apparently there is a long road ahead before Viktor Orban and President Volodymyr Zelensky will be able to actually meet. So they basically both agreed that they will, that Viktor Orban will travel to Kiev, I think that would be the first time in 14 years that he would have gone to Ukraine and basically hold a meeting together. And it basically comes after the Ukrainian foreign minister travelled to Kiev and Ukraine to meet his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kaleba. Yeah, just, just, it's just interesting that yeah, things are things are moving on in terms of that relationship. And the one sort of prominent pro-Russian leader in Viktor Orban is maybe softening as the as sort of feelings harden towards Moscow. And he sees no sort of route back into that sphere of influence. And I'll stop there for now. Well, thank you very much, Joe. We'll come back to you later to comment on some of the things I think that Roland's going to talk about. Well, we've spoken today so far about the discussions and debates and arguments in the West about how to best continue supporting and funding the Ukrainian war effort and Ukraine itself. Roland, you and others, so the bylines for this for this piece is very impressive. Roland, Joe Barnes, James Rothwell and James Kilner... Oh, I can hear myself back, Roland. So I'm not entirely sure why that's happening. It might not be your fault. Um, I, su- I suggest I'll just intro this again and maybe use Dom's phone or something. There's something, there's something going, going on with your phone. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but let's look then at Russia and the Russian war effort and how that's changed. And Roland, I don't know if you want to start just by putting some of this in context. I know you were at a rather interesting briefing last night. The context of this enormous piece is obviously this kind of long-term worry about okay grant that this is a war of attrition i think everyone pretty much agrees that that's what it is now wars of attrition yes they're one on the battlefield they're also one in factories basically and just to give you a context of that so yeah i had a lot of discussion with a pretty broad range of ukraine focused people in the past few days and I, i look there seems to me that there is a consensus that if the window for Ukrainian victory is still open, it's a long, long slog, right? So anybody who's saying, any serious observer in the West who is saying, we still believe Ukraine can win this thing, um, is also saying things like, yes, but we've basically wasted two years and decisions made now about arms supplies, about economic support, about all of that, that's going to start affecting the war not this year, but in 2025, or actually probably in 2026. And while that discussion is beginning to take place here, belatedly, you might say, 
back in Russia, that kind of discussion has been going on. We know it's been going on for for some time. And the Kremlin has very openly laid out plans for a switch to basically a wartime economy, a very sweeping mobilization of the economy towards uh, the war effort. So, so, so we decided to look at this this issue of this of this Russian rearmament program. So, the statistics are the official ones that come out of Moscow. Obviously, for all kinds of reasons, you have to treat them with a certain pinch of salt. But basically, the consensus is Russia currently aiming to spend forty percent of the government budget on the military, which is, I think they're saying roughly six percent of GDP. At the moment, if you remember that NATO's benchmark target is 2% and relatively few NATO members achieve that, that is a pretty, pretty big commitment. I would add, while we were reporting this, a few people we talked to said, oh, Russia's devoting 40% of GDP to its defense sector, which you take a few seconds, you think about that, I think that would be absolutely nuts. It's not 40% of GDP. If you've heard that figure bandied around... I'm fairly sure that's not true, but we had to... I think there was an echo chamber kind of thing, people repeating that. They mean 40% of the state budget, which is still very large. Now, there's, in the piece, we use the nice little anecdotal, this journalistic trick of finding a little bit of colour to put at the top of the story. The colour we found is that over in Izhevsk, which is the, the town you know, a few hundred miles east of Moscow, where the Kalashnikov concern of the eponymous rifle is based, a few shopping malls have been taken over and basically turned into drone factories. And there was a, a piece on Russian state TV, I think back in November, but it had been reported in March about um, a bakery in Tambov, which had also started churning out drones and things like that. Now, that's very much, yeah, it's slightly performative, it's for the cameras, but nonetheless, there, there is a consensus um, amongst Western observers that this is really happening. Right? The Russians have made a decision. We are going to devote a lot more stuff to our arms production and to our military and um, your basic analysis is exactly what I was saying uh, these kind of western analyses or something. no one's expecting that to, to change the battlefield dynamic immediately okay, so, so um, Sergei Shoigu um, the Russian defence minister was delivering a report to Putin or, to, or to, to the government relatively recently where he rolled out a few, a few slightly Soviet-ish sounding kind of statistics tank production is up listen look I don't have the specifics in front of me, but something like 350% increase in tanks and 255 increase in APCs and, and, and those kinds of things. And if you add that up, you might be looking at a replacement of what they've lost on the battlefield so far, right? So it's not regeneration for, for this mighty new force that's going to suddenly sweep into, not only fight in Ukraine, but sweep into the closer Savalki gap and start a shooting war with NATO as well. But... I was talking to a, a, a British defence insider kind of about this very issue last summer, actually, who was saying to me, think about this war in terms of eight-month cycles, because we're already at that point, but we knew that it wasn't going to be over quickly, all right? If you start thinking in those terms, then one eight-month cycle, two eight-month cycles, suddenly you're looking at a point where the Russians, where their production is, does begin to meet their demands, and then it's going to turn a corner, and then it's probably going to start outpacing NATO's and Ukraine's ability to resupply itself. And the basically the consequence, most serious West analysis watchers of this war who I've been speaking to, if there isn't a commensurate response from the West, the price of inaction is probably a Russian victory, to be absolutely honest. So that, that's, that's, that's the piece. There's little bits of nuts and bolts in there. 
um, that you might be interested in looking at. Um, we're mostly looking at the Russian side, I think. Uh, I did try to look at, I think, the Western response. It's such a knotty issue about why why have we struggled to, you know, get investment in a new production line out the door for so long. That's such a big other issue, and that deserves articles of its own. We have talked about it in the past. But that's the, that, that, that's the main thrust of it, really. It was an ensemble piece, I should say, as well. My job was mostly to put it together. The other people on the... Um, on the byline did a lot of the uh, the footwork and the reporting well let's get into just one of these issues then there's quite a few and i know joe will come in with his thoughts as well i think we can use this language on the podcast well well i present it so i will um the quote you got from one U- uk defense insider was it is fucking insane who was asking for anonymity to speak frankly and referring to institutional barriers to expanding Western arms production. Roland and Joe, would you be able to go into that a little bit more? What are the, like, what should we know listening to this? What are the barriers? And why is it so difficult to get production flowing? Uh, in my, just because, yeah, that was someone I chatted to. I mean, in my conversations, part of the frustration is, and part of the reason for that quote was the sense that you can't quite put a finger on it. Right. No matter the fact that, like, so I've, I've talked to a bunch of people in uh, behind the scenes, think tankers, serving former, yada, yada, yada. It's not like this is a mystery. It's not like this is something that um, no one grasps. Like, apparently, like, there seems to be a, lot, a bit of consensus, right? But, but despite the fact that, you know, at an individual level, certain officials, certain governments try to do what they think is the right thing. I mean, the full, the full quote was, like, at a systemic level or from the point of view, the thing that stuck my son is fucking insane, but from the fact that despite this is knowing nothing happens, I think probably, ultimately, if you push aside all the knotty details which you could get into, I think, bottom line, it's about political will and it's about the willingness of Western democratically accountable governments to basically go in front of voters and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to stump up a very large amount of cash to invest in in arms production for a war over there. I, I think that is basically the bottom line. And the difference which came out in my, which is also widely recognised, it came out in my conversations with with kind of war watchers over the past few days, is that Russia's advantage is it just doesn't face those constraints, right? So there's a, what's the cliche? I mean, I'm sure many politicians have trotted it out. Like what's short, short term is one week, medium term is a month, long term is the next election, right? I mean, Vladimir Putin does not have to worry about losing an election. He does not have to worry about a critical media. He doesn't have to worry about like the political opposition. Give it briefing the Telegraph's lobby team, and there's going to be a splash, and it's going to be really embarrassing for him. And then he, then his spads are scrambling, and and there's a mutiny in the back benches, and all of that stuff. He doesn't have to compete with with Keir Starmer, who's a, a government in waiting, like ready to criticise it. He just doesn't have to worry about that. Right? He just says, no, we're going to spend forty percent of the budget on on defence, okay, that's going to hurt. Well, the media's not going to talk about that. The Duma's not going to talk about that. Okay, we're going to take a hit. Okay, my my economists are going to be saying to me, oh, Vladimir Vladimirovich, really, like, look, this is, this is going to be a bit of a squeeze. Maybe in practical terms, they'll only be able to keep it up for a couple of years before I have to go back, but he just doesn't have to worry about that. And basically, we do. There's a couple of other more technical things, like, like one of the points people make is like, look, Russia's got basically still pretty much a state-owned military-industrial complex, um, that can be directed. The government can decide to give contracts, to give orders for production. Ours is basically in private hands. You've got uh, private companies like BAE Systems or whoever who are saying, okay, you want us to build a production line, like we need contracts. Right? We need to know 
that we're going to be selling for seven years or something. If the war suddenly ends tomorrow, are we going to have a bunch of shells in our hands we can't shift or something like that? So there's those kinds of commercial kind of knotty kind of problems. But bottom line is, is that that's a question of political will. Thank you so much, Roland. Just one more question from me, I think, before we go over to Joe for your comments. How much of a sense do you have of what life is like in Russia for people who are dealing with this? The fact that the entire economy, well, lots of the, much of the economy is changing to, to a war economy. You know, the, 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 the stand first of the article is, as Moscow turns bakeries and even classrooms into tools to ramp up weapons production, NATO is struggling. So what's it like on the ground from, from what you know? I haven't been in Russia since since before the war began. I think it would be misleading of me to try and give you a, a flavour of everyday life on the ground in Russia. But I mean, my the conversations I have had do not give me the sense that the country is suffering in some kind of Dickensian squalor, and a lot of Russian urchins are asking for more porridge at the workhouse and being thrown in the cooler or something. Like I mean. Yeah, it, it, it will be harsh, and the people at the at the lower end of society are going to pay the biggest price for this, and the burden. It will be kept away from the cities. Moscow, by all accounts, is still functioning pretty well. And in the short term, anecdotally, the government's done quite a good job of lavishing some kind of compensation on, well, on the war-wounded, things like that. At the moment, I don't see any, any reason to say, like, there, there's a massive, massive awful knock-on effect at the moment i'm sure it's there i'm sure it's there and i'm sure public services have been cut and people will be feeling it um it's another question about whether that ever reaches a point at which that becomes politically intolerable for the kremlin so bottom line is yes it it probably is there putin's basic old social contract with the russian people you keep out of politics i give you a, a rising lifestyle well that began to break down with the economic crisis in what when was that 2011 2008 right but still, you know, it's taking a long time for that to really trickle through and upset people. And people in Russia, you know, even when I was living there in, in those times, you know, inflation was going up, belt tightening was happening. But I, I've yet to see anything that would make me think that there's, I'm sure there will be knock-on effects. I'm sure it will be nasty. I think any war economy, you are, is basically what's the analogy like you're you're basically you're borrowing against future stability against you know all kinds of things are going to be cut and it will have a nasty knock-on effect in the future um i i'm not in a position to say exactly where that is now or how it feels for dan petrovich you know on, on on the bus in the morning thank you so much roland joe you also uh wrote this piece what are your thoughts what would you like to add yeah the political willingness that roland highlighted in the west is one of the things because one of the the repeat things that was mentioned to me when i was speaking to whether they be insiders or think tankers as we often do we often cross a wide range of people and we're producing these long reads i think it's 15 or 1600 words it's quite quite a lengthy piece and it adorned a i think a double page spread in the telegraph newspaper so yeah it's great that they give us this sort of space to do things but yeah one of the things was essentially the west isn't at war that is why Russia is outstripping. It's not the West at war, it's Ukraine at war versus Russia. Yes, we're helping out, but ultimately we are not at war. And then other things were spoken about in relative and specific terms. Artillery shells are a massive issue in Ukraine because both Ukraine and Russia's military are essentially artillery-led. It's the Soviet doctrine, where Western military doctrine via NATO, via US, via UK, whoever writes these manuals for war up, 
doesn't really use artillery that much. I think Britain last used sort of mass artillery, maybe in the Falklands. Don might be able to correct me on that. But yeah, it's just something. So is and is Russia out producing the West in terms of submarines and frigates? No, but in artillery shells, yes. That's because it had a lot of capacity in that area previously because it prioritised mil- uh, military-based operations on artillery where the West hasn't done that for a long time. Um, yes, the West is trying to ramp up production of artillery shells, but it's happening slowly. Roland mentioned the idea of contracts. A company doing building a new production line, bringing the workforce to ramp up production work seven days a week, isn't going to do that without substantial with substantial investment. And Roland hinted on the, the magic number of about seven years is the kind of contract length that Western arms manufacturers want before they are basically going to do this. And then the other thing is actually to highlight, it's actually Russia isn't having all its own way. So Shoigu, the defence minister, has highlighted, oh, we're building X amount of tanks and stuff. Russia, there is no real evidence of Russia actually building new tanks it is refurbishing and taking tanks out of deep storage that it's had sat there for sort of decades, gathering dust and just adding a few extra bits of armaments to it, maybe a new barrel, a new, maybe if it's got night vision, if they are lucky enough to have them, and sending out upgraded versions, which are only just replacing what's being lost. So yeah, it's not all sorts of things. But then the other, the other thing is, Western sanctions in the first six months uh, had a really biting effect on Russia's ability to produce things that are more technological, like missiles. But then, through that six months, Russia basically got its ducks in a row and was able to circumvent all of these sanctions that have been placed on it by the UK, the EU, the US, other Western countries, by essentially deciding, look, it doesn't matter how much each Western component that we need to manufacture these missiles is going to cost us. It's just the fact, can we get hold of it? So it's a willingness to do that. So um, I, I had a look at the the KH series of air-launched cruise missiles with an expert at the Ukraine Space Institute, and that's basically the most common of Russia's stockpiles. And it's roughly comparable to the US Tomahawk. And Alexei Ponovsky, the senior researcher that I spoke to, basically saying that you have to look at the creation of these missiles in a few ways. First, they're created using these really complex CNC machines, which are essentially giant industrial laves, kind of tall tooling machines um, that haven't really ever been sanctioned, and Russia is still able to get hold of them, but it is getting a lot more of these machines from China. So it's he's basically saying, look, this is one of the points the West has to look at because it has to deprive them of this capacity to get hold of CNC machines. And then the second point is actually russia over and it's not probably since 2014 when the crimea sanctions went into place and the donbass war went into place sanctions went into place is russia has essentially been diversifying the way it produces these missiles in as such as it no longer uses military only technology inside of them and it just uses general purpose electronical components and it has basically developed its missiles and converted them all to work with consumer grade components which is essentially easy because it means that they can send someone, whether it be a, a Russian diplomat or even just a Russian holidaymaker because countries still let them in, they can send them to the West and say, can you buy me a load of these things and just bring them back in your luggage? And that might be enough to make us X amount of missiles. 
which is just one of the things that that's a loophole that we're never going to be able to close. But what we have found out is speaking to various researchers and people who look at fragments of missiles that turn up in Ukrainian cities after these long range attacks is that these missiles used in the most recent attacks in January were likely produced in December 2023. So that means that missiles are going straight from the Russian production line into their arsenal and being fired. So actually, they are as hand as mouth as some of sort of the Western countries sending stuff to Ukraine. It's like they're not without their own problem. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Well, thank you very much, Roland and Joe, for talking us through all of that. Francis, I know you've got a quick update for us, and then we'll move to our final thoughts. Thanks, David. Well, Roland was talking about the state of Russian society, and there are a few quick stories from Russia today. So I'll just whiz through those now, and there'll be one more in my final thought too. So the Kremlin has signalled its support for Iran as it faces, of course, the prospect of likely American retaliation for the killing of three American soldiers in Jordan by proxies on Sunday. We do not welcome any actions that lead to destabilisation in the region and increase tensions, especially against the backdrop of the excessive potential for con- conflict, Dmitry Peskov told reporters. We will not welcome the continuation of such actions, regardless of who they come from. The level of tension is high now, blah, 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 blah. This shouldn't come as any surprise, given the way Moscow has positioned itself in this war. It has been opposed to any Western response in the Middle East from the start, no doubt seeing this as an opportunity to gain leverage and influence in the region among Arab nations, specifically on Iran. It goes without saying that it supplies Russia with Shahid drones and other munitions which have proven vital at various stages in the war in Ukraine. So it's no doubt, or no wonder, should I say, that they support them here. Moscow is also flexing in Asia, saying it will deploy new weapons to a disputed Asian island chain, also claimed by Japan. This comes from the former Russian president Dmitry Medvedev, presumably in one of his sober moments. The Kupriel Islands, which Japan calls the Northern Territories, remain a diplomatic stumbling block between the two countries. Japan, of course, has been a significant backer of Kyiv in this war to a degree that surprised many. So that may also explain some of the hostility between the two being heightened of late. And just lastly, on the same theme, as Don mentioned reports this morning that the Kremlin is officially forming its own mercenary group to operate in Africa. It won't come as a surprise to our listeners. We reported on that assumption that this would be Moscow's intention immediately after Wagner's former chief Bogosian was shot out of the sky. The fact is, Africa is simply too valuable to the Russians for all sorts of reasons, not least as a provider for vast amounts of wealth which enable it to fight its war in Ukraine. But further evidence, David, if needed, of Russian belligerence. Thank you very much, Francis. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Joe Pons, can I come to you first? Uh, yeah, I was I was thinking earlier, and I, I know it's been alluded to, that Ukraine is essentially now saying, and further pouring cold water, that there are any 
prisoners of war on the uh, IL-76 that was uh, crashed in the Belgrade region and Russia claimed was 65 prisoners of war on it because there's just a lack of evidence. Look, I, I, I may be wrong, but when MH17 went down in the Donbass, there were pictures of people and bodies and parts and signs of life that were quite clear and photog- photographed by people. Surely if Russia really wanted to... Um, Build the narrative that Ukraine knew about this plane, knew about it carrying prisoners of war. They would have released some substan- some stamp, some substantial evidence. I just, I just don't see that there. So it seems to be more that it might be leaning to the point that actually Ukraine has shot a, a military transport aircraft out of the sky, which was carrying missiles rather than prisoners of war, as Moscow has tried to push. Thank you very much, Joe. Roland, can I come to you next? What is my final thought? I don't have anything massively constructive beyond that. I think just just on what the kind of caveat Joe's throwing in about the end of about our piece. Yes, absolutely. You have to take some of these some of these Kremlin numbers with a pinch of salt, which is why I mentioned kind of Soviet statistics when I was talking about Shoigu. Okay, he says they've churned out X many tanks. Maybe there's creative accounting there because really they're not producing new ones they're just refitting old ones maybe even he's massaged the figures a little bit more because we know there is this issue with positive reporting like bad news is not rewarded right so hence a lot of do treat it with a grain of salt that said there there was i think rusi came up with these figures earlier this month that you know back at the height of the counteroffensive, the ukrainians were firing off something like two thousand shells a day more than the russians now it's down to the ukrainians being rationed to about two thousand rounds a day the russians firing off about ten thousand that that gives you a sense of what this means at the front what the industri- the industrial war means at the front for ordinary people Right? There is nothing more terrifying and horrible than hearing incoming shells and not knowing where it's going to land and not being able to call on counter-battery fire or any kind of support. That, The bottom line, that's where this ends up. It's not just about statistics in factories. And that's why, basically, people are agonising about it. That's, that's about all I have that is constructive today. Thank you very much, Roland. And Joe Francis-Stanley, would you like to go next? Thanks. Just a very brief one from me, David, which is there was speculation and concern last night about Russian dissident, British Russian dissident, I should emphasize, Vladimir Karamuza, about his whereabouts. Like Navalny, he seems to have been moved without warning. And indeed, the British Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, was tweeting about it last night. His concern, as was Bill Browder, well known, of course, because of the global Magnitsky justice campaign. Alicia Kearns, chairman of Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, also wading in. It appears that he's now been found at a different prison colony after disappearing from his Siberian jail. Uh, His wife was also concerned last night, who, of course, we interviewed only a few weeks ago on the podcast, a really interesting episode, which I recommend to listeners. It seems he's been transferred from Omsk IK-6 to an IK-7 prison, as I say, moved without warning to either his family or a lawyer. We don't know why, but it would appear that he's been sent to the strictest form of isolation. And perhaps, and again, I'm only speculating here, we've seen a lot of clampdowns recently. It may be that this is just another example of not having any risks of somebody tweeting, saying publicly anything that might be uncomfortable for the regime prior to those elections in March. But he has been found, thankfully. But of course, a huge cause for concern when someone disappears like that. 
Thank you very much, Roland, Joe and Francis. Dom Nichols, would you like uh, to share your final thoughts to end today's episode? Yeah, thanks, David. So I spoke yesterday uh, as a final thought about uh, just, just my continuing incredulity about why the package is not able to get through US Congress and why clever politicians who are who know how to play the game can't get it through. And thank you for your answers on there. Many, many people of our, uh, from our US listeners in particular who are offering their thoughts on that. I mean, the other great canard of particularly that very vocal minority in the US about why aid shouldn't be sent to Ukraine was, uh, was corru- it's all corruption. It's all going to just line the pockets of Zelensky and, and he's going to put more gold wallpaper in his bathroom and all that, kind of, all that kind of stuff. So I note with interest today the news that three inspectors general from the US Department of Defense, the State Department and the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, arrived in Kiev yesterday. So the US ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink, said... Their meetings with implementers, partners and the Ukrainian government support oversight and accountability for U.S. assistance to Ukraine. So this process, which has been ongoing throughout this whole program of aid, it it continues. Uh, The last visit by uh, U.S. inspectors was in September last year. And Ambassador Brink said in an interview with Fox News last November that the inspectors at that point um, have not had not uncovered any cases of military aid theft in Ukraine from U.S. supplied um, equipment, munitions, uh, and other military aid. So, unless something dramatic has happened between November and now, uh, which these inspectors are going to discover, then I would expect uh, sort of similar to uh, to be um, to be the case now. So, we just need to note this and move on. That won't assuage anybody who believe that this is just going straight into corporate graft and pockets of officials. But we have to keep beating the drum when we see this evidence. It's not just us saying it. Ambassador Brink, the US ambassador is saying this, and the inspectors there from the DOD, states and USAID. So worth noting, David, but undoubtedly we will come back to this. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.